0: 15 seconds guidance is internal 10 9 ignition sequence start space nuts 5 4 3 2 1 2 3 4 5 5 4 3 2 1 space nuts astronauts report it feels good Hello again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. It is episode 216. My word. Uh, and next week it's episode 1000 because we can't count. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am quite well, sir. How are you? Yes, I'm doing fine, thanks. Yeah, all good.
1: I um, I passed a milestone this weekend or last weekend with the new knee. Uh, because oh. uh, being free of the industrial strength painkillers, I can now drive again, which is
0: great. So, Oh, okay, yeah. Six weeks. Yeah, they put all sorts of weird um, restrictions on people who take drugs. I don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah um.
1: Uh, they, they were good drugs, though. You
0: know. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine, yes. Yeah, the, some of the strong painkillers. Because they've changed all the rules in Australia uh, and, and now there are certain things that you used to be able to get over the counter that you now have to have a prescription for and it, it's much, much harder than it used to be to um, to get pain medication and all sorts of other medications. And I suppose that's because people were abusing them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and turning them into things they shouldn't have yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly. that's the reason yeah. so, so the innocent amongst us suffer through pain because of people who want to make money on the side yeah <laughs> thanks a lot um but but you're up. that the pain isn't too bad now it's doing okay it's, it still aches a bit um as i said six weeks after the operation
1: it's uh uh seems to be doing really well i'm doing my physio program and um you know uh, Keeping, keeping hard at work at it just to make sure the new knee joint doesn't seize up or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, it was a big, big milestone. Um. Being able to drive
0: sets me back to a normal life, basically. Oh, indeed. Yeah. And, um, you know, my back seized up three weeks ago. So I, I understand the pain you're going through. And thanks for the, uh, the, the crunchy little letter you sent me. It's good on you. Thanks. Um, no. Uh, let's uh, talk about what's on this week. We are going to be talking about this uh, this distant galaxy that's uh, made the news. Oh, by the way, it's Science Week this week. It is. Uh, so we're going to do, we're going to do uh, a couple of really amazing stories and answer a couple of questions, one of which actually relates somewhat to this particular story about this, this galaxy that appears to us due to a gravitational effect as a ring. But when you unravel it, it's even more amazing. Uh, there's also concern, and this, why doesn't this surprise me, that landing modules on the moon could pollute the, the ice, the water ice. Shocker. Who would have thunk it? And we're going to uh, answer some questions today, uh, one from Brian about uh, whether or not we are um, just a, a universe inside a, an atom, inside a massive universe or something to that effect. And uh, another quirky little question um, about the uh, the universe uh, and whether or not there could be another Milky Way galaxy uh, and a sun and an earth in another part of the universe. All very interesting stuff which we will unravel today on the Space Nuts podcast. First, Fred, uh, let's look at this uh, ring-like galaxy or it looks that way from our perspective. Indeed, that's right. And I'd um, uh, urge
1: uh, our listeners, Andrew, to, to see if they can seek out a picture of this because it is really an, uh, an amazing image Um, It's on a a European Southern Observatory press release, but it's also been picked up by the media. So ESO is the organization that's issued this. uh, And it is data from the ALMA uh, array, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile, uh, which is partly operated, not completely, but partly operated by ESO, the European Southern Observatory. Um, So the the headline for their their press release is ALMA sees most distant Milky Way lookalike. Uh, And if you can kind of do a search on that, you probably find it. Because the image is extraordinary. (laughs) It is almost a perfect ring. Uh, And it's like that because of an effect called gravitational lensing, which you and I have talked about before. But this is a very special um, sort of uh, situation in that effect, in that what you've got is uh, a galaxy, a distant galaxy, which is exactly in line with a, a very much more distant galaxy. Uh, so, uh, th- two, basically, three galaxies in a straight line because we're in one as well. So, from our vantage point, we see uh, a galaxy um, which is in front of a, a more distant one. And you might think, well, that just, you know, the nearer one will block out the light of the far one. But it doesn't, of course, because of the, the gravitational effect of the nearer galaxy. It distorts the space around it. It makes that space behave like a lens. Uh, in fact, it makes a space behave like a gigantic telescope because you effectively magnify the, the distant galaxy beyond and certainly in, um, increase the, um, the light intensity of it. But of course, it also distorts it. Uh, But the the particular case of distortion that you see here is what Einstein predicted in, I think it was 1936, if I remember rightly. He predicted that in in a situation where you get two bodies exactly line up, uh, the the further body would look like a ring. Uh, It would be distorted into a ring, and that's why it's called an Einstein ring. He didn't believe we'd ever see these things, but uh, Mm -hmm. in the 1970s we started picking them up. This is... a a really stunning example of uh, of uh, an Einstein ring. But what is, I think, even more stunning is that given the computational power that we have today and the algorithms that are used for uh, essentially reduce, uh, you know, reducing the data, um, scientists are able to, to look at that ring, look at the structure in it, and anybody who's looking at the picture will see that it's, it's got knobbly bits in it. It's, it's not just a perfectly uniform ring. It's got variations in intensity uh, around its circumference. Uh, but we, with modern computational facilities, you can take that ring and you can basically say, okay, we know what the effect of the gravitational lens was. Let's uh, basically turn the ring into what it would have looked like if we could see this galaxy directly. Uh, and in fact, on the ESO press release, there is a a rather nice video that shows that process taking place where you go from a ring to, to a galaxy by, you know, uh, essentially it's something called deconvolution. You deconvolve it to turn it into the original galaxy itself. And then that's where the, story really starts, because it turns out that this galaxy, which is 12 billion light years away, uh, so its light has taken, you know, almost the full age of the universe to get here. um, It's rather like the Milky Way, which is a surprise. Uh, the, The resemblance to the Milky Way is that this galaxy has a disk and it also has um, a, a, a bright nucleus, a bright core to it, which our galaxy has too. Uh, what we don't see is spiral arms, um, and that may be just because, you know, that's a detail that's too difficult to re- to reveal, or perhaps more likely, they haven't formed yet, because this galaxy is a baby galaxy. It's um, it's only, you know, something like one one and a half billion years old. Uh, It's, well, let me put it a different way. We see as it was when the universe was only about a billion and a half years old. So the universe itself was young, therefore the galaxy was young. Um, We're now looking back from a vantage point in a galaxy 13.8 billion years old, uh, and galaxies look a lot different now from what most galaxies look like in the early universe. But this one is a bit of a standout, because unlike many of the galaxies that we have observed from this era, which are pretty ragged looking affairs, because they haven't got themselves sorted out yet, uh, as as ours clearly has, Uh, this one looks as though it is rather neat and tidy. And that is a surprise to the authors of this work, who, by the way, are based mostly in Europe.
0: It's an astonishing story,
1: Andrew. Amazing.
0: Yeah, it is. And uh, as I mentioned, it it relates to a question we're going to answer later on, but uh We've talked about uh, coincidences in alignment before and and one of those is when we uh, see a a total solar eclipse uh, and it's just coincidence that the moon is just the right size to cover the disk of the sun at this point in time. And so we're very, very lucky to be able to see that. So this is a similar coincidence that we are lined up with a galaxy which is lined up with a galaxy in a perfect straight line to create this this lensing effect that gives us a a ring-like galaxy. I I think that's just incredible. It
1: is. It's it's an amazing story. And, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the the, the interest in the press release is really about the puzzle that this is a, um, a, a galaxy that looks older than its years. And, in fact, one of the authors actually says more or less that, what we found was quite puzzling. Despite forming stars at a high rate, and therefore being the site of highly energetic processes, uh, and the galaxy is called uh, SPT0418-47. SPT0418-47 is the most well-ordered galaxy disk ever observed in the early universe. Uh, the result is quite unexpected and has important implications for how we think galaxies
0: evolve. So remarkable stuff! Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. But I just so by studying this one, we could learn a lot about ourselves and where we are in the universe. Maybe that's
1: right. Yes, because we we always thought that uh, you know well-ordered galaxies are, are a recent product of the universe, uh, and when you look back in time, you see these scruffy ones that don't look at all well-ordered. Um, mm. This one is.
0: Yeah, fantastic. All right. Uh, What I might do is uh, get the image from the ESO website and get uh, our producer Hugh to put it up as the photo attached to this week's uh, episode so people can see it as we're talking about it. Uh, they've they've done a, a couple of variations of the image. Um, some some uh, give a really good example of what we're talking about. So I'll see what I can do there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a. Um, when 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 was this one originally discovered? Do we know? Uh, quite recently, I think. Um, it's
1: probably um, you know so that usually there's a, a gap of one to two years between the observations and the paper being uh, published. Uh, so I would guess within the last year or two
0: yeah wow okay well keep an eye out for that when uh, when you click play on our episode you've probably already seen it and gone what is that? Yeah. Well now we've told you <laughs> uh, you're listening to Space nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were brand new, uh, new to the market. But uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I Particularly liked, and a couple of years down the track, honestly can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing? Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com/. Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now back to the show. Roger, your here also. Space nuts. Once again, we'd like to thank our patrons. Uh, we're getting a few patrons join us every week, and we appreciate your financial support of the Space Nuts podcast, which uh, can cost you as little as you like. It can cost you nothing at all. It is completely uh, up to you as to whether or not you uh, decide to support the podcast financially. If that's something you would like to do, you can do it through Patreon, uh, or supercast, and you can find those links on our website uh, spacenutspodcast dot com but thank you to all of our patrons and of course, as a patron, uh, we give you bonus material, we give you a commercial free version of the podcast, and we give it to you early. Uh, which um, is just uh, our way of saying thank you. And uh, once again, uh, to everybody who supports the Space Nuts podcast in whatever form, even just listening through YouTube to get our download numbers up, that helps as well. So thank you very much. Now to uh, our next story, Fred, and this one is not so positive in the astronomical world, that of uh, landers on the moon polluting the water ice. How human of us to do such a thing.
1: Yeah, it is, isn't it? But this is another story, Andrew, that that surprised me. You know, the the Einstein ring one certainly did, and this one did too, because who would have thought that a lander uh, with, you know, coming down on the moon's surface with its exhaust plume uh, helping to decelerate the spacecraft so that it does a soft landing who would have thought that the products of that exhaust could actually go all the way around the moon? That's a staggering idea because the moon is not a small body. It's, you know, it's a quarter the size of the Earth. Yeah. Uh, it, so a, a couple of basics. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere as we do, uh, but it does have what we call an exosphere, which is a, a basically a very rarefied Gas around it, so you might think of it as a very, very thin atmosphere, uh, uh, which is, you know, it's basically it's got various different elements in it. Hydrogen's there, um, we know, uh, and other things too. Um, so, what what we're talking about here, though, is um, that being polluted by large quantities of particularly uh, water vapor, which is present in the in the exhaust of uh, of um, uh, of spacecraft, uh, so this is a. a in fact, the, the the work that we're reporting actually comes from simulations. It's not anything that's been measured. These are modelling simulations led actually at the uh, Johns Hopkins University in in Baltimore in Maryland. Uh, but what the scientists have shown there is if you take just you know a, a kind of Small-sized lunar lander, not nothing as big as the, the the lunar modules that landed during the Apollo era. Um, I think they they basically uh, looked at something a bit more than a ton. A 2,650-pound lander, that's about 1,200 kilograms. Uh, That's much less than the Apollo lunar modules were. Okay, so what you do, you you simulate this thing coming down with its exhaust plume, uh, slowing it down, touches down near the moon's south pole, uh, and the first thing that's staggering is that their simulation showed that the exhaust really takes only a matter of hours to disperse around the entire moon uh, really yeah and and two months later, thirty to forty percent of this vapor uh, actually persisted in the lunar exosphere, this sphere of very rarefied gas. and then they said um, that ultimately uh, eventually a few months after that, about twenty percent of the gas would freeze out back into water near the poles of the moon. Uh, and that's because those are the regions on the moon that are coldest, these places in the in the craters near the South and North Pole where the sun never reaches. Uh, so it's, uh, we, and we know there is water ice there from many observations that particularly at the South Pole, there is wa- there's frozen water in some of these deep craters. Now, what that means, of course, is that when you do scientific investigations of that water, that natural water that there is at the moon's poles, suddenly you've got to take into account the fact that there is water ice there that's come from the exhaust of spacecraft, which is earthly in origin. It's not, um, you know, this is not stuff that has arrived via comets or stuff like that. Uh, and so people are very much looking forward to studying the water ices at the at the moon South Pole to look at things like the isotope uh, r- uh, ratios um, which tells you a little bit about the origin of that water ice uh, if you suddenly find that there's all this stuff that's got ooh, a very earth-like isotope ratio um, maybe that's going to spoil these you know these observations um, it uh, in fact as the as so, some of the um, Uh, researchers say. um, uh, uh, So these are some of the, yes, this is talking about the natural ice in the the craters of the Moon South Pole. These are some of the only places where we can find traces of the origin of water in the inner solar system. Uh, And reading that record requires measuring the composition of those ices as well as their various isotopes to deduce where they likely came from and how they may have gotten there. Frozen out exhaust gases from robotic or human exploration that collect on those ices could confound these measurements, even if the lander touches down hundreds of miles away. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Who would have thought that we could, you know, so easily p- pollute the uh, the moon's
0: environment by spacecraft that have gone there already? Yeah, I'm I'm not at all surprised, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's. A- it's such a natural thing for humans to do. Let's trash the place. Well, we, um, yeah, we, did, we, we, we we've, so. we've smashed things up on it. We've we've driven around on it. We've left all our junk behind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, True. We've got a habit of doing these things. Yeah. Um, it's- um, but if I may, um, we, we know there's water on the moon. Um, we know now there's water on the moon that we put there through uh, lunar exhaust, uh, Lander exhaust, uh, but water would have gotten on the moon through um, i suppose uh, impacts yep. uh, from icy objects uh, and would there have been water uh, potentially on the moon uh, as it was created after the impact of, um, uh, of of that unknown planet into Earth that they think now created the moon? Uh, or was that too early in the uh, in the in the process for it to have extracted water?
1: Uh, um, it's it's thought that some of the water. I mean, this is really specifically referring to the Earth, which is also a puzzle as to to where its water came from. And impacts by comets is certainly one uh, one answer to that. But there is work that suggests that you know the 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 the, 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 the young Earth itself embodied water molecules in its structure uh, and the same is probably true of the true of the moon when it was impacted by thea is the name of the object that um, that hit that's right uh, it's a hypothetical object but is so entrenched in our understanding of where the moon came from that it's actually got a name uh, named after the the, the mother of uh, Selene, the, the the moon itself. A great name. So, um, yes, so there may well have been, you know, water molecules, hydrated uh, rocks within that object itself, Um Uh, That meant that the water on the moon is indigenous rather than having come via comets. And these are all, you know, these are ideas that is is one reason why people are so much looking forward to to analyzing the water on the moon to try and see whether we can learn stuff from that. But they now have to take into account the fact that there might be a layer of of earthly water on top of it, It, uh, frozen, you know, frozen water uh, that's come from rocket exhaust. Interesting stuff. Good job, everybody. Yeah. Excellent work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Was there enough sarcasm in that? Um, <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. But I suppose, I suppose what, you, what you've said, though, opens up another avenue of thinking in my mind, in that um, the water on Earth and the water on the moon and perhaps the water in so many other places is a multi-mix of sources. It's not just one sort of deposit from one place it it could come from all sorts of different you know um situations and uh, created um, what has become a unique mix on earth i imagine our water is probably nothing like water anywhere else yeah in a in a you know minute sense
1: yeah that's that's <clears throat> that's true um and and the the key um Sort of a signature in in terms of water where it came from is this isotope ratio between uh, it's between um, normal hydrogen and heavy hydrogen, which is usually called deuterium. Uh, that will that can form water molecules as well. It's called heavy water, um, and so it's the ratio of light water to heavy water uh, that is the you know one of the key. Um, signatures of where water might have come from. And so that, that you know, that's really uh, just to set the scene. Back in probably the 1970s and 80s, the theory was prevalent that all water on Earth had come from comets, um, which we know are icy objects, uh, and we know comets have impacted the Earth throughout its history. So take that as your starting point. But then when we started um, visiting comets and analyzing their, uh, you know, their, their gases in more detail, we found that the isotope ratio in comet water is not the same as in the water on the earth. And that um, kind of suggests that perhaps comets were not the, uh, were not the the source of water. This is the thinking back in probably the 2000s and 2010s. Uh, However, Um, there are one or two comets that do have the same isotope ratio as Earth's water. So among the comets, there's there's variation. And I think you're right that what we wound up with is probably a mixture of various different sources, Uh, exactly as you've said. I think
0: that's looking at it the right way, Andrew. Okay. And now we're sending our messy water to the moon. Yeah, yeah. That's right. (laughs) Well, we've already... uh, Uh, When the time comes for them to report on what they've found, when they get a chance to analyse it, uh, we we can talk about it again. uh, It will be a fascinating revelation, I imagine. Plus all that lunar exhaust, yes. Um, You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me, Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, I did mention YouTube earlier where people can log on and listen to our latest podcast, as well as all our material from day one, dating back to 1822 or whenever <laughs> we started, something like that. Yeah. Feels like it, it was 1822 somewhere. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, thank you for listening. Uh, of course, we're, we're available on uh, all sorts of platforms. You'll you'll find us on Facebook, the, uh, the official Space Nuts Facebook page, but there's also a Facebook group that has been created by Space Nuts listeners, the Space Nuts pod, podcast group on Facebook, uh, where you can all chat to each other and share ideas, and uh, a lot of people like to ask questions and see what the group thinks. It's uh, it's a pretty good little um, uh, group, very dynamic. So if you haven't joined the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook yet, look it up and and say hello. I think you'll find it most enjoyable. Uh, and we've um, we've got ourselves on uh, just about every podcast distribution platform. Uh, on the interwebs. So um, pick your favorite and you can listen to us there uh, if you so desire. Uh, I mean, if you're listening to this message now, you're clearly doing that anyway. Uh, Let's uh, go to some questions, Fred. And this one comes from Brian Kenyon. G'day, Brian. Uh, Nice to have you uh, send us in a question. Uh, he, He asks, have you guys ever looked at the solar system as a bigger much bigger atom. Uh, I made a a small comparison to how they have some similarities uh, for an eighth grade paper. Uh, Has this been discussed and have we thought we are just atoms to something bigger? Now, I've seen this kind of uh, imagery portrayed in science fiction movies and there was even a, a story on Facebook this week, which may be where Brian uh, came up with the idea for this question, or it's a a coincidence, I wouldn't be surprised, Uh, but it was suggesting that uh, our universe is just inside an atom of a greater universe. It's an interesting concept. Uh, Whether or not it's possible, I don't know. Maybe you do, Fred. (laughs) No, I don't know either, but I do like, (laughs) I really like
1: Brian's um, question because Uh, I remember, you know, this is centuries ago, and Brian said he he was thinking about this for an eighth-grade paper. I was probably about the same age when I was thinking exactly the same thing. That, uh, Mm. you know, uh, I, I actually remember sitting and looking... At um, dust particles in a in a beam of sunlight guess where it must have been in a dusty environment there was this sunshine shining in and I could see these dust particles and I was thinking I wonder if they're little solar systems because I knew that atoms had electrons around them which were a bit <clears throat> like the planets of the solar system uh, and and it, it kind of cheered me up actually I thought maybe you know maybe there's a tiny solar system in there um, however what we know about the atom uh, tells us that it is very different from what we know about the planets. So the, it's a nice analogy, but it doesn't have, uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't carry forward. Um, partly because um, I guess the uh, w- when we think of an atom, um, the, the, the the original idea of the atom was that you had a nucleus uh, with electrons. Uh, which were in orbit around the nucleus, and that's where the the comparison with planets comes in. Uh, we now know, of course, that these are actually just um, uh, basically uh, uh, you know cloud. They're not they're not electrons. They're they're probability clouds, uh, if I can put it that way. Where you where you may have an electron and you may not have an electron because of the way quantum physics works. So they're just clouds of. Um, essentially clouds of waves. That's another way of looking at them. But nevertheless, the idea of a of, a, of an atom with its electrons whizzing around it is still a very nice concept. Um, it differs, however, substantially from what a solar system looks like, because we know from both our own solar system and other ones that we've observed around other stars, that we don't have things whizzing around in different orbits uh, at least as far as the planets are concerned the planets are all in the same plane they're not angled differently uh, uh, there's the, a the slight difference is a few degrees but basically uh, a solar system is a star and then this disk of planets around it rather than what we would envisage an atom to be like with its electrons all whizzing around in orbits at different inclinations even though we now don't actually think that model is correct. Uh, of course, the reason why the planets are all in the same plane is because they came from a disk of uh, debris, the uh, protoplanetary disk, that's what they were formed in. Um, you can just extend this one step further, though, because comets do behave more like the way we would have envisaged electrons. They come in all kinds of different angles. And the, uh, Excuse me, and that's because we believe that comets actually come in from the Oort cloud, which is a shell of material, a, a, actually a spherical shell of material around the sun, uh, which is really a leftover from the original cloud of debris in which the solar system was formed. So it is a nice, it's a nice comparison. Um, when you okay, so then you say, well, is the solar system a big atom in something bigger? And in a sense, mm. it is because it's part of the galaxy. But uh, the it turns out that you know the space between the solar systems making up our galaxy is probably even bigger than the space between the individual atoms uh, making up uh, solid objects on Earth. Um, uh, so it's a, it's an analogy doesn't really carry any weight theoretically but it is certainly a nice way to envisage the way the solar system fits into the bigger picture
0: it's a good question to ask because i think we've all been there as kids Uh, me as a grown-up used to you know i I wondered if our world was just a um, a universe under some giant's thumbnail i mean (laughs) we've all had those kinds of thoughts because and the reason I suppose we think that is because we have so many unanswered questions about the universe, and and there's so much about the physics and the science and the and the um, uh, lack of knowledge that all mix up to create these these theories. We all want answers, and we all uh, let our imaginations run wild. And you know uh, the, these things can be you know, become real in science fiction, but um, we're starting to kind of get a bit of a handle on it and realise certain things can't be. Um, But it it reminds me of um, the original Lion King movie when um, uh, the the two mates were lying down looking up into the night sky and uh, one of them said to the other, "What what are all those lights? And the first one says, it's just the holes in the cloak of night letting the sunshine through. And the other one said, oh, I thought there were millions and millions and millions of worlds just like ours out in... The out of reaches, and I thought <laughs> that was very cleverly done. How yeah. uh, one of them that seemed very dumb came up with the exact right answer to the, right, okay. to the situation, but um, you know we've all been there, Fred. Yeah,
1: and but a great question from Brian, and thank you very much for it because it's nice to revisit those
0: ideas. Indeed. Thank you, Brian. Nice to hear from you. Let's move on to our next question from James Friedrich, a very South Australian name. He's from Loxton in South Australia. Of course, uh, those who don't know what we're talking about, South Australia has a very significant German heritage. Uh, German settlers uh, began the, um, the wine industry in parts of South Australia, which turned out to be perfect for growing wine. Uh, we're now starting to realise that most of uh, most of the southeastern quarter of Australia is great for growing wine. Uh, we even grow it in this district, which uh, is um, quite a dry, arid place at some at times, but uh, perfect for for wine growing. Uh, anyway, Fred James asks, I recently read an art, and th- this sort of uh, relates back to our first story about the uh, the ring. Um, Galaxy that we were discussing. Uh, I read recently an article that said the data from the Pank satellite suggests that either space is flat and infinite or at least absurdly huge and curved. I wonder if space is truly infinite. Do you think it's possible that matter somewhere else in some preposterously far-flung part of the universe would have arranged itself so that there is another Milky Way, another sun, another earth, and therefore uh, another you, and I uh, am contemplating the same question. Um, It uh, just seems that if the universe is infinite, uh, then it uh, must be inevitable. Just wondering what your thoughts are on this. Now, I've, again, sort of looking at science fiction, they've actually made movies about uh, a second Earth. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's another one where your childhood imagination probably goes from time to time. Indeed, that's
1: right. Um, and actually, James is kind of on the money because... Um, so that, that data he's referring to came from the Planck satellite, uh, which is one of the spacecraft that measured the cosmic microwave background radiation, and you get um, results from that that really talk about the geometry of the universe. Um, And so the belief really is that the universe is probably flat, and that doesn't mean it's shaped like a tabletop. Uh, It means that the geometry that we experience around us essentially extends uh, to very great distances. In other words, parallel lines never meet, uh, and uh, triangles have, uh, you know, angles that always add up to 180 degrees. So it's normal geometry, um, and that's pretty well the the um, the, the view of most uh, cosmologists, people who look at the history and evolution of the universe as a whole. Um, and a consequence of that is that the universe is probably extremely large. Uh, and we really don't know what that means <laughs> uh, because it is possible it may be infinite um we don't we we we're not able to see an infinite universe because there there are horizons beyond which we can't see one of them is the cosmic microwave background radiation the flash of the of the big bang which is kind of like a wall of radiation um 13.8 billion light years away uh, that we are looking back 13.8 billion years that we can't see beyond so we, we live in a bubble uh, of the universe, this little bubble within which we can see and beyond that, there's probably a lot more universe that might be like, might be infinite. Mm-hmm. I, I always think of it, you know, imagine uh, a beach ball or something like that floating around in a, in a concert hall uh, and the concert hall rep- might represent the universe. The beach ball is what we can see of it, a tiny part, um, and, and we're at the center, of course. So, um, even though even within the observable universe, we believe there are two trillion galaxies, and that is not just a guess it comes from measurements made by the hubble space telescope two trillion galaxies, each of which might have a hundred billion stars so you 're talking about around two to the power twenty three Stars. Now, we know that most stars have planets, so um, it does seem like a very large number of objects, even within the observable universe, let alone the infinite universe beyond it, if, the, if it is infinite, uh, that there's uh, uh, obviously a great um, reservoir of potential objects that might turn out to be like ourselves and might have um you know, James and ourselves contemplating the same question: another Earth. We just don't know. It's uh, it's um, a, a, it's a it's a theory that certainly, or, or an idea that certainly has merit. You can't just dismiss that idea at all, and it's perfectly valid. Um, the perhaps the argument on the other side comes from the astrobiologists, many of whom think that the step from uh, Single celled organisms to multicellular life might be very, very rare. And therefore, that intelligent life itself might be very rare. Um, and that, but even then, you know, when you weigh up the statistics, who knows? It's, it all comes back to the Drake equation, of course, uh, Andrew most of which we don't most of whose parameters we don't know uh, we do know that there are planets out there which Frank Drake didn't know when he put the thing together back in the 60s still um, the, the you know we we, 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 we can only guess at uh, the likelihood that there might be other intelligent species out there the downside the real downside is that yes if they're rare while there might be other other folks like us out there the distances are so colossal Um, even within the bubble which is the observable universe you're talking about distances measured in many billions of light years and that is a very big challenge for actually finding these putative individuals if they are there Um, certainly rules out any kind of communication with them at least with the physics that we know about today so uh, it's a yeah, that, I think you know that's, uh James suggests that life like our se- <clears throat> species, like ourselves, uh, talking to one another in the same way as we are doing now, might be inevitable elsewhere. Um, that's that's a reasonable assumption to make, but
0: we don't know, mm. and we, <laughs> we may never be able to prove it. Yeah, we, we may never know. <laughs> Yeah. Something you said and and that James has referred to about the universe being flat confuses me because we've talked in the past about the universe expanding at an accelerating rate in all directions simultaneously, which says to me it's spherical. So how could it be flat? Yeah. So Are we talking about the material in it? No, it's just the geometry.
1: And it's a description and and it is an appalling name to talk about the universe being flat because it it, it does what, you know, it, it... Gives a pitfall that everybody falls into, <laughs> because uh, it, it is it, it does have spherical symmetry. The flatness refers to whether um, it's uh, whether geometry uh, that we understand here on the Earth, um, whether that extends over the full size of the universe. In other words, as I said, parallel lines don't meet. Um, parallel lines don't meet in a flat universe, but. Uh, you can point those parallel lines in any direction because it's got spherical, you know, spherical symmetry. It's a confusing term and it's a really bad
0: I, No, I get it. No, you made sense. I get, I get it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thank God. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm, I'm, don't ask me to repeat it,
1: though. <laughs> well, the, the idea comes from, you know, the fact that if you, I, I mean, I'm sitting at a table at the moment and I'm imagining the table. That has normal geometry. Um, uh, with parallel lines not meeting triangles, angles adding up to 180 degrees. If this table was um, not a table but a globe and I was balancing my laptop on it (laughs) rather precariously, that would not have flat geometry on it because it's a globe, it's a curved surface and the geometry of a curved surface is different. Uh, Parallel lines meet. Angles don't add up to 180 degrees. That's where the name comes from, of a flat universe. It's the geometry, not the shape of the universe
0: itself. Gotcha. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) You've made my day. (laughs) I wish I'd known that 35 years ago in my mathematics exam, but anyway, it's too late now, much too late.
1: First time anybody's understood that explanation.
0: Um, all right. Uh, thank you very much, James. Uh, great question. Gave us uh, a lot to think about. And um, uh, and also hello to the other James uh, from Loxton, South Australia, in the other Earth at the other end of the universe. Thank you, too, for asking the question. Um, thank you, Fred. That's where we wrap it up for another week. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been an interesting one for Science Week.
1: Yes, indeed. That's right. It's great. great time I'm to... I'm sure you've been busy. I have, yeah. I've got a big gig coming up tonight as well with uh, CSIRO talking about the square kilometre array. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, all all systems go.
0: <laughs> all right. Very good. Uh, well, we'll look uh, forward to your company again next week. Thanks, Fred. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Take care. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large here on the Space Nuts podcast. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again. Uh, Don't forget to send your questions in via our uh, website, uh, spacenutspodcast.com. You click on the AMA link and if you've got a device with a microphone in it, just hit record. Tell us who you are, where you're from and ask your question. We uh, love audio questions, but if uh, you don't want to do that, you can always send them in via text form. And uh, we look forward to your company on the next edition of the Space Nuts podcast.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.